0: Hello, and we are the makes of History, with me, Faz and Ross. Say hello, Ross.
1: Hello. How
0: are you doing then, mate? What's been going on? Tell yeah. me what's happened to you since we last spoke, apart from the little bit we spoke about before yeah. the
1: podcast. No, I'm good. I mean, can't say I've done anything special, like nothing jumps out, but tomorrow is public holiday, so...
0: Oh, no! Nice. nice very nice so you're gonna hit it hard tonight then? oh nice. yeah i got work in the morning man i can't go that crowds, though. I'm that's who close i your problem <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah so no all good for that how are you doing
0: yeah all right man not too bad i've been busy at work very busy uh but good good busy you know days flying yeah. that's that's all right um hoping in about three weeks the extension's going to be finished as well so that's going to be even better when that happens So I just can't wait to have my house back now I
1: think you have some form of heating in the house
0: yeah, it's like just <laughs> empty and cold and... yeah so uh, yeah, it's going alright mate not too bad I've got really no stories of anything interesting to tell Yeah, unfortunately
1: yeah, I don't think I have like a <laughs> I literally have no memory of the last weekend. So maybe that's something amazing. I just don't remember at all.
0: Oh, no, I went to Brighton. I went to oh, Brighton, didn't yeah. no, That was pretty sick. Yeah, yeah, I went to Brighton. Uh, we've, so Loz and Josh live down there. So we went to see them. And then Manor and Connor come from London, and we all went down for the weekend. not like Six of us cause got this nice, like, they got this house. It's, like, this beautiful, like, three-tiered terrace place. Mm. proper nice. Uh, yeah, we just chilled for the weekend, seen some stuff, had some food, I, I'd recommend going to Broughton, it's fucking wicked, like it's proper chill, I, mm. I don't know, do we have any listeners in Broughton?
1: I'm uh, not sure. I, I don't think
0: I've ever seen them on the map, but Broughton people get listening. Yeah?
1: Uh, There's one thing you need well, to no, remember.
0: we do, we do, remember, we do, we do. yeah, yeah, because what was that and there? Oh I was yeah. listening <laughs> to it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, people are brightening your chill, happy place. Get some Nazis into your life. Yeah, yeah, get Listen some to our real, podcast.
0: yeah, some real deep, dark Nazi history into your know, life. <laughs> bring because old are all having a great time.
1: Mm. No,
0: it's a nice place, sir. So, have you ever been?
1: Or anyone else a kid?
0: Oh no, no, it's nice man. Really, really nice. There's some? Yeah, so sad. Didn't even go on the pier. They got a massive pier. I didn't even go on it. Yeah, massive like look- pier.
1: It's not 1924, you don't actually need to go yeah. there. beer.
0: not easy <laughs> taking photographs of people with a big old <laughs> <each>. <laughs> <see. laughs>
1: Step up, roll up, roll up. <laughs> see in the world.
0: I don't know. So, what are you drinking then? What <laughs> you got? See so you slope on something hazy coloured, was it? Or was that just a refraction?
1: This is a Dobrushka from the Rampershack Brewery. So, oh, it's I like a. Uh, Czech microbrewery. Is that the, the, the,
0: the, the rhino one? No. Oh.
1: What's
0: the one you had the other night? Rhino? It was an animal.
1: I had Hedgehog. That was Yezek. No, no, Jezek.
0: not Hedgehog. Another one you know Zuba. F- Zuba, that's it.
1: Yeah, that's my reserve beer. We've got another Zuba. That's extremely hoppy.
0: I like a hoppy beer, man.
1: This one's a unfiltered one. It's quite nice. It's like a... Yeah, like, like fresh-tapped draft beer, basically.
0: Oh, no, it's guy. Okay. Oh, yummy. Yeah. Very nice. What have you got? Wow. I haven't opened it yet, because I'm going to... Matt sound like that. And then I've got a very nice bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I've got Glenlivet, Caribbean Reserve. So it's finished in rum casks. Like the after it's done aging for X amount, it gives it like a really dark colour. Okay, it's yeah, it's yummy, man. So that's why I'm saying I can't overdo it because I'm drinking I'm drinking it neat because I'm a gaze, and that's up <laughs> <should drink> whiskey. <laughs> Single malt, obviously. Single malt, yeah, you know, I ain't messing about. You're
1: classy, gentleman.
0: For you people who don't know, that's the that's Scottish, it's a Scottish like whiskey, like the best whiskey in the world, in my opinion. Um, there you go yeah, that's what I've got so cheers bro. this is my first sip cheers mm. ooh oh, it's a bit harsh that's mm. oh, good that is a lot of that mm. very nice that,
1: that was that was sophisticated
0: I'm a sophisticated this is what I told <laughs> you like, people don't realise just because <laughs> I sa- just because I sound like a sound I'm from Birmingham Like I'm fancy as fuck bruv People don't realise that about me.
1: Like I've got Butler. Uh,
0: I'd like, like that that it... me wife, but <laughs> I've got one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's cause she doesn't listen to the podcast, I think. She, yeah, no, she
0: openly admits that she doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can say what I like. <laughs>
1: Just like so you know, the classy sophisticated gentleman, ladies and gentlemen, just for you to know, <laughs> Foz is wearing a fleece cardigan covered in pictures of wolves.
0: Yeah, because I'm chilling
1: out, man. Don't <laughs>
0: worry about me, don't worry about what you're doing. You know what I mean? I'm comfortable over here. It's cold, and I'm wearing my indoor comfy clothes. All right, look. and it's it's you know, it's cool. You know what I mean? cool. I'm stylish, do you know what I mean? I'm alternative. It's alternative to stylish. <laughs> <laughs> ah, lovely. Well, yeah, yeah, so I'm very confident. What are you wearing? You're wearing a blue shirt. You're not really normal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I go out like a human being because I've been in public today.
0: Well, I've, I've got changed.
1: Some of us have been hard at work on this wonderful podcast, writing it, because i left it to the last possible minute to do that.
0: <laughs> No, so uh, speaking of the podcast Where are we at, bruv? Where do we finish it and where do we carry on to what long this journey?
1: Alright, so last time then with within the series we talked about um So Hitler finally got his war he had his war declared on Poland. and um, honestly to me, like I think I've made the the comparison like in the show in the show description or on the Twitter, but To me, Hitler was really like, you know, the dog that chases the car and then he catches the car and like, oh shit, what do I do now? Mm. Okay, he's got his war that he's been chasing for years. Relatively easy victory over Poland. But now he's facing what's widely considered to be the finest army in the world, the French army, and what is the largest navy in the world, the Royal Navy. So this is Germany is facing its nightmare scenario. and Really? The French army was considered the best? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that because
0: of... It's based on its performance in World War One. Exactly.
1: Okay. So the French Army was, I think by this point, it was no longer the largest, oh no, definitely it's not the largest army, smaller than the Red Army. Um, but it's large, it's well-equipped. Obviously, like you say, in World War One, the French Army had been the major instrument of Allied victory until the British Army got shit together from about 1917 onward. But yeah, so the French Army, widely considered the best, most professional, best-equipped army in the world. And the Royal Navy was still larger than the US Navy at this time. So for Hitler, this is a nightmare scenario. for all of the Well, for Hitler, it's great because he wanted the war. But for all of Germany's strategic thinkers, this is like the worst nightmare. Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, he's having
1: a great time. He's <laughs> having a riot. Yeah. So Germany goes to invades Poland. And, you know, the much vaunted French army just kind of sits there and doesn't really do anything. And Poland is like crushed between the Germans and the Soviets and the Western allies don't really do anything. So this period from the like the autumn of 1939 into the spring of 1940 is known as the Phony War or the Sitzkrieg. Very little happens. So there's we no said movement,
0: last there's no movement along that border between France and Germany. Like, yeah, very
1: little. Right? Very little. Like in fairness on both sides it's fortified, like the Germans have the West Wall, the, the French have the Maginot line. So it's very static. Um as we said last time, like Germany's kinda of hitting these all of these economic problems. The German war planners are facing the reality if they've got a war they can't win. So the German army is tasked by Hitler with coming up a way of defeating France, and what they come up with is, I think we mentioned it last time, is a repeat of the Schlieffen Plan from World War One. Mm-hmm. So a big right hook through Belgium and along the sea, and to like hook round the Allied armies I can imagine it. all the way around Maginot. But literally like along the Belgian coast, the idea like a big arm sweeping round to cut the British and the French off from the sea, and this is exactly what Germany tried to do in World War One. The German army planners believed their own plan would fail. They believed they would not win against the Allies because you know, Germany had lost World War but one when it was stronger. Why would the same plan work? Yeah. The Allies had also correctly anticipated this is what the Germans would do. The Allied plan for the campaign in 1940 was completely based on the concept Germany would do this. What they had was a line of fortifications in Belgium along the Dial River, and their plan was to go to the Dial Line. And the idea was to basically refight World War One in Belgium. The whole point of the Maginot line is not to make France invincible, it's to make the war happen in Belgium, not France. Okay. So Maginot's job is completely is that Germany should try and go around it. That's completely the point of Maginot. So the Allies have anticipated what the Germans are going to do. Germans are just planning to rerun World War I. If they had done this plan, they almost certainly would have failed. The Allies had correctly predicted what Germany would do. Enter, stage left, Erich von Manstein. So he is the chief of staff of Army Group A. And he's also a colossal piece of shit of human being um, and a convicted war criminal. What
0: did he do then? Like, what did he get charged for? And what, what's his crimes? Was so he a Nazi wanker?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so at the end of World War II at the Nuremberg Trials, he would be convicted for the murder of, of Jewish civilians, the murder of Soviet prisoners of war um cooperating with the Einsatz group and the SS men who were, you know, killing Jews en masse in Eastern Europe. Um dirtbag! Yeah. So and he was did, all... he get... did he get life? So let, let me give you so these are the things he was convicted of, like eight or nine charges of like, you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity. He also is known to have like, you know, committed perjury. He lied, claiming not to have known about anything that was happening. One of the pieces of evidence around him is that he literally wrote a letter to an SS man named Otto Ohlendorf to complain that Ohlendorf should hand over all the wristwatches and murder Jews because his soldiers deserved it more than the SS. <laughs> so how long do you think he would get for lives, these crimes?
0: Many lives. Many lives. Like, ridiculous, smart lives. He'd probably get, like, 500 lives or something. Or, um...
1: So he was sentenced to 18 years. How many of those do you think he Half actually served? Half, Three years. What? Then he was released. He became a best-selling author. He became an advisor to the Bundeswehr. He dedicated the rest of his life to perpetuating this like myth that the Wehrmacht was clean and all the crimes were the SS. And he dived a wealthy, successful man at the age of 85.
0: Huh, what the fuck, man? How can, how's that allowed to have happened? Yeah, good, and it?
1: Colossal piece of shit of a human being. That, like... <laughs> so, he is central to the defeat of France in 1940. So, German command, like the the head of the army, is a guy named Franz Halder, and he has come up with this rerun of World War One. Manstein is talking to one of the core commanders of Army Group A, a chap named Heinz Guderian. Guder- yep one of Germany's most famous panzer generals. Guderian is, like, one of the main influential thinkers about the idea of use, how tanks should be used in the future. Guderian objects to the plan the German army has come up with, like, this is World War I and we will lose. What he argues for is what becomes known as the Sickle cut. So instead of hooking around the coast, instead they will punch through the, where France and Belgium's border meets, like where Luxembourg is, to punch through there and cut the Allied front in half. So you go through the Ardennes forest, punch through to the sea, and then the Allied armies are cut off from each other. Manstein takes this plan and he presents it to the what's called the Oberkommando des Heeres, which is the army high command. Doesn't mention Guderian at all. Was like, no, no, this is my brilliant plan. Presents it. And Howder and the kind of the existing senior generals are like, no, this is too risky. We're not going to do this. This is in December of 1939. Come January, on the 10th of January, one of these many fucking freak lucky things happens for the Germans. Two officers are flying in a plane which crash lands in Belgium those two officers are carrying the full invasion plan for this attack round the coast manstein then so now he knows that the existing plan is in allied hands he once again takes gadarian's plan which he's presenting as his own this time he goes directly to hitler hitler approves the plan so on the 10th of may yeah it's one of these colossal strokes of luck without this plane crash the existing plan would have stayed and they would have run straight into the Allied armies. So,
0: come the spring... All these things that that happened for World War
1: II to happen, it's mad, isn't it, Ray, look? Hitler was fucking mad lucky. So many times. Like, just how many times have we said through this series, like, just pure luck. Time and time and time again. That's fucking mad, man. (laughs) So anyway, so we get to the spring of 1940, the weather improves and the German army is ready to go on the offensive. And on the 10th of May, the assault begins. German Army Group B launches an assault on the Miver Meurs, which goes through Belgium and the Netherlands. So they're attacking along the front. The artillery is smashing the front line positions. Paratroopers are dropping on Dutch and Belgian cities. Special forces get into gliders. The gliders land on the roofs of Belgian uh, fortresses. Capture the fortresses before the defenders even know they're there. The British and French army, shit, the attack is, is
0: on. Full Schmuyger,
1: is that? Full paratroopers, yeah. yeah. So the the best parts of the French army and the British expeditionary force, they're like shit. It's on. They rush up to the dial plan, up mm-hmm. to the dial line, in accordance with the plan. They rush up there, and again, if this was the original plan, the attack would now fail. But 100 kilometres south of the Dial line, Army Group A is driving through the Ardennes forest. The Ardennes is this dense, heavily forested, mountainous area. Uh, the medieval poet Petrarch described it as, it's so dark in there that the soul freezes in one's breast. And into this dark, winding forest, four 400 kilometres long columns of german vehicles are moving in 1200 tanks 500 half-tracks forty thousand trucks and cars
0: wow that is a mechanized armor
1: yes so this is the kind of the brilliance of like manstein he's focused all of germany's best kit here mm-hmm So on the 10th, they begin moving through this region. It's very lightly held by French forces. The French command assumes the Ardennes is impassable to tanks. There's no need to defend it. On the evening of the 11th to the 12th of May, a French pilot spots lights moving in the Ardennes and reports it. By the 12th of May, there are detailed photo reconnaissance flights happening over the Ardennes. The French high command can see the German army moving. If France had any reserves available, the plan would now fail because it would run straight into a trench defensive line while they're all 400km long columns. France has already committed all of its resources to the dial line. They're rushing into Belgium and the Germans are coming into the south. The Allied command assumed that any attack on the Ardennes would take 15 days to get through the forest. Germany does it in three. How? Huh? Few things. So first of all is, this is Hitler going kind of balls out. He commits all of Germany's fuel reserves. Germany has five months of fuel supply. He commits all of it to the attack in the Ardennes. The the vehicles are literally refuelling on the road as they're moving. They drive solidly, three days and three nights. How do you think you get a man to drive for three days and three nights solid?
0: Oh, give him some of that big smoke.
1: Yep. Metal. Shit tons of... Yeah, methamphetamine. Methamphetamine. as they back. called it. Yeah, no, so they're literally just... What did they call it? Purvitin or Purvitin Pan-
0: that. Yeah, I've heard Pervitin before.
1: And they gave it, like, the brand name of Panzerschokolade, so like tank chocolate. Mm. So they're smashing the fucking meth for three days. Presumably, like, hard base pumping in all yeah, of the German yeah, tanks. yeah. So as the Allied armies, they're rushing up to defend their defensive line, the panzers are already behind them. After 10 days, on the 20th of May, the 2nd Panzer Division reaches the English Channel, and there are 1.7 million Allied soldiers encircled behind them, the largest single encirclement in history. Now, of those, 370,000 of them were managed to escape at Dunkirk when they lifted off the beaches. Yeah. Another 100,000 French will manage to sneak through gaps in the line as the Germans are advancing. But they have to abandon all of their tanks, heavy equipment, artillery, everything. And at the end, 1.2 million British, French, and Belgian soldiers are taken prisoners. Wow. This defeat is worse than any single defeat the Red Army would suffer through the whole war. Yeah. So you think of those huge German successes in 1941 when they smashed through the Soviet Union. None of those are as bad as this. Yeah. So, at the cost of 49,000 German dead, the Allies have suffered 120,000 French dead and 1.2 million soldiers captured. France surrenders on the 17th of June, so six weeks afterwards. Well, is that its whole army gone? Effectively.
0: That's fucked, (laughs) right?
1: It's one of the most spectacular successes in military history.
0: It is, yeah, man. And it was easy.
1: Mm. Because
0: what an oversight by
1: the Allies. So the question, obviously, is how did this happen? So we have to look at kind of a few... Ways of understanding. Because obviously everybody is dead shocked in 1940. Everyone has assumed the French army is the best in the world. This war will be a rerun of World War One. It will be fought in the same way as World War One. And here we are six weeks later. The most powerful land power in Europe is defeated. So how? Now you already kind of alluded to like the mechanisation. So is it because Germany has a blitzkrieg army an army built for lightning war i'm gonna argue that no it does not
0: that army was uh, we'll come, come to operation. that operation
1: we will come to that so german army as a whole though is not built as a blitzkrieg force germany has 93 divisions uh going into the war and of those nine are panzer divisions so like 10 percent I'm not sure about that, 93, I think I've contradicted myself somewhere. Never mind. Um, the Allies have more than 4,000 tanks. Germany has 2,500, so nearly 2 to 1 advantage in favour of the Allies. So we say, okay, is it because Germany has panzer divisions, like, you know, concentration of tanks and vehicles in singular formations? France also has something very similar, like the DLM, the Division Legere, Mechanique, sorry, France. As I hurt your language, basically the same thing. Like concentrating tanks and fast vehicles in division. The French, you know, the people talk about like you'll see it in all the in the documentaries, like oh, Germany concentrated its tanks in the Panzer divisions. The French distributed them um, through the army, right? France could do this because it had twice as many tanks as Germany. Like you can spread them out if you've got loads of them. Yeah. And like we were talking in the last episode. You know, we look at what Germany was focusing on in the lead up to World War II. Focusing on artillery and ammunition. They're focusing on the JU-88 medium bomber. Mm-hmm. And they're focusing on building a navy. Tanks weren't anywhere near the top of the priorities. Like, tanks were behind fortresses. Yeah. So they were not deliberately building a blitzkrieg army. No, no,
0: no.
1: So... The Western Allies trying to respond to this shock... Their answer is, oh, it must be because the German equipment is better. And this is a very convenient thing for the Western allies to say, like the British and the French. Oh, we couldn't. How could we fight the Germans? Their stuff was so much better because it excuses the incompetence of the allies. Um, The Germans, on the other hand, they were like, well, obviously, because we are the master race, we're inherently racially superior to the French and the British. We're inspired by the ideological fervor of the Nazi regime. We all want to be the best Nazi soldiers. And Hitler is a genius. Obviously, if you're the Nazis, that's the fucking rhetoric exactly you're going to push. Oh, yeah, of course. And it's also like, you know, we talked about like resistance to the Nazis within society, within within the leadership. At this point, everyone who has criticized Hitler said he's leading us to war, he's leading us to disaster. Well... Hitler, as far as you can tell, was dead right, and the generals were wrong. Everyone who said, we're going to lose this war, and then Hitler has smashed France in six weeks. Yeah. It completely undercuts any sort of resistance in Germany, so obviously from a propaganda angle, the Nazis want to emphasise how this...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I still don't answer the question of...
1: Yeah, so let's get into it a bit. So I think there's a few reasons we can point out. I would say there's probably about four main factors. The first of which already alluded to is Western incompetence. The French general staff kind of bounce in between complete complacency and like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's fine, and then like abject panic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an you know, account from Edmund Ironside, the British general, that he had to go to like a French commander and he found him like crying behind his deck so the war was lost and he's like shaking the man like you have to fight and the British the generals were already calling back to London saying the French are beaten we haven't fought a battle, but the French are beaten there were two kind of key figures Maurice gumlin is the head of the French army going into this he is very very complacent everything is like no no, no it's fine the Germans will do what we want to do they'll be very very slow once his army is encircled on the 20th, he's removed from command and replaced by a game named um Maxime Weygand Wagond is interviewed and he's like when he's like, you know, promoted to be head of the French army, and he says, My first mission will be to get a good night's sleep. So you see he's responding with urgency and fucking action to the fact the entire French army has just been cut off. He cancels all of Gamelin's uh standing orders. So Gamlin when the French army is being encircled, kind of eventually realise what's happening and he orders, okay, we must break out. And he orders the French army to push south. Wagon comes in, he immediately counteracts that order, cancels it. Two days later, he's like, oh, actually, that was a good idea, and reinstates the order.
0: What, the <laughs> fuck, man. what did we do, though? It sounds more like French incompetence.
1: I mean, you've got to bear in mind the, the British expeditionary force is very small. Okay. It's like, I think a couple of... there's like, maybe six divisions maximum. Ah, OK. Whereas the French, we're, like, talking, like, 150 divisions. Yeah. Like that. Uh, the French are the bulk of the force. But it's just, like, you know, France's political par- paralysis and it's... The, just the complete inability of its commanders to, like, drive their soldiers or to do anything. Like, French soldiers will put up fierce fights at times, but they're just not getting any instruction from centre. Mm. And I think, like... Edmund Ironside captured it when he's like telling Winston Churchill the French are beaten, even before the war is over for France. There's just no will to fight back from the French leadership. Also, what's got to be said? A lot of the French generals obviously like they tend to be politically right-wing, and they were very sympathetic to fascism and Nazism. They didn't want to fight for a socialist France against Nazi Germany.
0: Ah, of course. Yeah, because obviously from the, we're not. Too far away from, you know, Bonapartism and stuff are oh, really? we, like Bonaparte, how long ago was that?
1: I mean, like you have like, you know, French monarchism and stuff going on well into like the early twentieth century. Um, you have like the precursors of fascism are in France. Mm. There's a lot of anti Semitism in French uh culture. It was a
0: really like unstable time, wasn't it, for France? Yes, yeah. like after world war
1: one yeah like they, they have governments that last like a year at best yeah. it's really really rapid turnover of government like the country's very unstable. it's on the on the edge of civil war pretty much throughout the interwar period i mean and also like this questions around will to fight boils down to the individual soldier level as well uh, one of the features of the British Army in the early war period, which is uh, mentioned in Jonathan Fennell's book *Fighting the People's War*, which is a fantastic book, in the early war, it mentions like British soldiers as soon as they see the Luftwaffe turn up in the sky, they would just stop moving, hunker down, panic. And... Really? Yeah. What? Just because of the propaganda? But they just see the planes. There's no sign of like the RAF in the sky, so they. Oh okay. They panic, and obviously you think like the Stuka as well, with the, like the Jericho siren in their diving Mm. the germans had really built into the psychology of air power um like i don't want to go massively into because i want to do like a series about this but the british army throughout world war ii would have serious issues with morale and will to fight that as soon as things would get difficult the british army struggled to like kind of push through hard hard scenarios which i think it sounds a little bit surprising it's not how we think of the war but like when you compare like British number of British soldiers captured compared to number killed, it's like hugely disproportionate.
0: Yeah, what do you think that was? Because they um, don't have that reputation now, or they didn't have that reputation before.
1: It's I think it's very much about the fact they didn't have something they believed in to fight for. You know, like the um Germans and the Soviets obviously very ideological with the Imperial Japanese as well, like very fanatically politically. For the Americans, they'll have like the New Deal and like promise that you will come back to an america that's better than it is and in britain like the conservative government was very unwilling to make any sort of promise for social change and these people have just lived through the great depression so they've known unemployment they've known hardship they've known poverty uh, and the government's telling well if you win the war you'll have more of the same so there's kind of a lack of motivation in like british and commonwealth armies yeah okay. um so yeah so there's a tendency of Allied Western Allied soldiers not to dig in and fight and, like, do or die in the same way the Red Army or the Japanese Army will.
0: Okay. So before we talked about the use of, like, the Panzer 1s heavily, like, the majority of the German army being Panzer 1s, so how's mm-hmm. that changing now, what are we looking like on the kit front?
1: Yes, yeah, so we say the Germans have got uh, 2,500 tanks. Of those... Uh, 1,500, more or less, are modern, like Panzer III, Panzer IV, and also Panzer 35T and 38T acquired from Czechoslovakia. Yeah. On the Allied side, I think people tend to over... There's like a movement now that people kind of overestimate the French tanks. People talk about, like, oh, the the French tanks are really heavily armoured, really powerful guns.
0: Shah de Batil.
1: Exactly, like the Shah 2B heavy tank... And it's true that, like, a Two B is very heavily armoured and heavily gunned. However, those are a relative minority of the French tanks. Mm. Like, the majority of tanks being used by the Western Allies are much lighter. Like, the most common UK tank is the light tank Mar 6, which is a machine gun carrier. It's like a... Yeah,
0: literally a machine carrier. It's a Panzer
1: 1 equivalent. Um, France, in the you know, in nineteen forty we'll end up using between five and six hundred F T seventeen tanks. As you might guess from the name, F T seventeen is from nineteen seventeen. It's a First World War tank. Oh wow. Okay. And even those French heavy tanks with the thick armor and the heavy and the powerful guns, yes, this is true. But they don't have radios, for example. Yeah. They have one or two man turrets. So you think of like a German tank for like the Panzer III or the thirty eight, they have, like, three-man turrets. You have gunner, loader, commander. Each man can focus on a task. French tank, you have one man in there, so he's commanding the tank. He's also, like, so he's directing the driver. He's also, you know, communicating with the other tanks, making the, the plan for how they're going to engage. He's directing the driver. He has to spot for his own gun. He has to load his own gun. He has to fire while doing everything else. Like, yeah, the, the commander's completely overworked. And he can't easily communicate with the other tanks around him. So, although if you look like purely like in a top Trump's way of like numbers and gun, you're like, oh well, Char Two B is better than Panzer Three. Mm. Yes, but in terms of like using it as a unit, it's not the same. Like the, the French stuff is very outdated,
0: mm.
1: and like the concept of how they build and design tanks is gonna be proven by history to be wrong. Like they
0: <laughs> you know uh, you're doing this wrong, mate, basically. Basically, but they've Oi, taken this well, concept. Crazy... Get your hat together. <laughs> you're doing it wrong.
1: Well they've taken this concept and they've like, you know, built up like add more gun, add more armour but the fundamental concept is flawed. And that's as well like big problems with training and you know, lots of tanks end up being like broken down, running out of fuel, just being lost in this way.
0: But a lot of people had that problem as well. They were not the only people who were losing, you know, maintenance issues with German tanks were
1: rough. That would... That's more of a mid-to-late-war thing. What Basically, Hitler falls into the same trap the French did. Like, mm. more armour, more gun. Yeah. At the cost of, like... Well, the tanks that won in 1940 were light. Yeah. Light, fast tanks. Um, But I think this is also, like, you know as Hitler's, like, mental state breaks down, he's, like, less of an agile thinker and more, like, defend at all costs, big gun, big armour. And he's got people around him, like Ferdinand Porsche, who are like, yeah, 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 big tank, big tank.
0: Yeah, obviously, because that works in his (laughs) favour. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I'll build you a massive, massive tank, mate, don't worry
1: about that. Big as a fucking house, if you want. Yeah. So... Uh, the Allied advantage on paper is less strong than it appears. Also, you know, the Germans fully commit the Luftwaffe to the, to the air. They completely overwhelm the Allies in the air. The French have a big air force, but a lot of it is not modern. And the modern aircraft, they've kind of distributed everywhere, and loads of them just end up on airfields that are overrun by the Germans are ever taken off. They've like, distributed the planes to protect them from air pa- from air attacks, but then they kind of basically lose control of what is where, and yeah. all like, the coordination breaks down.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah.
1: Well, on the British side, um, the head of RAF Fighter Command is a guy named Hugh Dowding. And basically, Hugh Dowding makes a very cynical decision, which is he looks at the scenario and says, France is going to lose. So his plan is... I can commit the Air Force completely, the Fighter Command, to a battle I think we're going to lose, or I shepherd my strength to defend Britain. Yeah. And he chooses to defend Britain. So like the area of Spitfires, which are probably the best dogfighter of World War II. Yeah. They stay arguably
0: you know there's arguments for other planes but there's a good very strong case for the spitfire
1: i'm gonna make the i'll come out and say like for me the spitfire is the best dog fighter yeah the the thing that maybe you could say okay the mustang is maybe a better fighter overall is because of the range spitfire yeah. can barely cross the channel whereas the mustang changes world war Two. yeah um But, you know, the area of Spitfire is the newest, latest, and greatest Western Allied fighter. They stay in Britain. They don't fight over France. Mm. Only the hurricanes and the gladiators and all this old, weird shit the Air Force had acquired in the 20s and 30s gets committed to France. So the Allies are holding back. The Luftwaffe go all in. So we said, like, you know, action kicks off on the 10th of May. By the 30th of May, 30% of all Allied aircraft have been destroyed. Wow.
0: Yeah. A lot how much percentage of um, German
1: uh good question Let me quickly check my notes because I write it down mm, survey so says it down? Uh-uh. uh no because I am apparently stupid did not write that down That's oh no I'm like 30 percent of the Luftwaffe is lost in France
0: oh 30 of offer
1: so their their losses are also high, but they've gone all in to achieve the result. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's paid off. So, yeah. So the allies are kind of they're holding back. They're not committing one hundred percent to the fight, like on moral, political, military, mm. like psychological levels. They're not they're not all in it. You know what I mean? And another factor is basically that manstein was very good at what he did as much as he was a shit human being and definitely should have hanged he was brilliant at what he did so you look at his the scenario that's facing him at the start of the of the campaign right so you have 151 allied divisions british french belgian on the other side you have 135 german so yeah i'm contradicting myself from earlier but i think that was 93 was a pre-war building plan and this yeah, is with no. mobilisation. So, with
0: mobilisation, 135 German. I'll accept so your lies. I'm sorry. I to mislead out, you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I am
1: a, dis- I'm a disinformation campaign. What can I say? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're trying to make the Nazis sound bad, but really, they were really good. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. <yeah. laughs> Please continue. We've it- psychologist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, the Allies together outnumber the Germans, right? By a significant margin, like nearly 20 division advantage. Division is like 10 to 15,000 men, so that's like. I can't do that maths at the top of my head, but you get the idea. It's a big advantage. A lot of men. Some might say too many men. Too many men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what Manstein is able to do is. He's able to achieve advantage in numbers where it counts. So there's basically three theatres within the Western Front. So we have the Dial Line in Belgium, the Netherlands, where the Western Allies are expecting to fight the battle, right? Over here, Germany commits 29 divisions. The Allies commit 57, which include the best of the French army, includes the British Expeditionary Force. The best Allied divisions are committed to the Dial Line. We have the Rhine Valley where Germany and France have their direct border. In this area, Germany commits 19 like reserve quality division, like second-rate German divisions, facing 36 French divisions at Maginot. So again, in the, on the dial line, Germany is outnumbered nearly two to one. On the French border, Germany is outnumbered nearly two to one. In the Ardennes, though, in the crucial area of, like, the French-Belgian border...
0: Where the push happens.
1: Where the push happens. Germany has 45 divisions and the Allies have 18. They are able to achieve... What number well, was that? 45 against 18. 18? Oh, okay. So nearly three to one advantage in numbers. Yeah.
0: And they're already packed up in the tanks and trucks and boats and...
1: Exactly. And also, like, you know, we'd said before about the German army, like, between the wars are limited in size, but what the Germans did was every man in the army is a sergeant, basically. When the army, when we go to war, all of those are going to be the NCOs and we'll build out the army we'll have all this experience and quality. Mm. Because the German army between the wars doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't have an empire that has to go and fight over and defend. Yeah. Like the British and French do. They have to have functional armies. The Germans are just building an NCO corps for when they expand mm. so the quality of training is also very very high so in the key area where the, the fate of Europe was decided Germany had a 3 to 1 advantage in numbers wow. and this is the brilliance of Manstein he successfully misdirected the Allies to commit their troops to the wrong places it helped that he was up against Wagon and Gumlin. like they defeated themselves as much as he did defeated them yeah Literally, like, there was wargaming from some officer who, like, planned out an attack through the Ardennes. And French Archimandes were like, oh, no, that's impossible. That's a ridiculous thing to do. Don't do that. (laughs) They just, every step of the way, they just assumed Germany will do what we want them to do. They will attack in exactly the way we want them to attack and we will win. Also, geography helped the Germans. You know, this is like northeastern France and Belgium. This is heavily industrialized countries, right? Like very developed. They have a very dense, high quality road network. So your trucks and your tanks can get on those roads and move fast. The English Channel is only a few hundred kilometers away. So you have this hard target that you're going to pin the Allies against. You break through to the channel, that's it. You've cut them off. Mm. You only have to get that like couple of hundred kilometers from the German border to the English Channel and you've encircled them. You don't have to actually wrap all the way around them.
0: Yeah.
1: And related to this, the distances involved are small. Like Paris is not far from Germany, it's like in Iraq on top of France. The German border to the English Channel, again, a couple of hundred kilometers. Most of the German army is moving on its feet or on horses, right? The tanks, obviously, are much faster, but there's a limit to how far ahead the tanks can get. Although they're going much faster, you know, if they're going like let's say fifty kilometers a day, in four days they hit the they hit the sea. You know, it's... the matter of distance means the tanks can't get that far ahead of the infantry.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, if we imagine we take away that dense road network, we take away something hard that the armies can be pinned against. We just have a big open space where the tanks will outrun the infantry, and I'm kind of describing the Soviet Union. And you can see how this worked out very, very differently in 1941. Yeah. So for Germany, in the way they fought the campaign in 1940, France was an ideal target. France's own geography helped the Germans to defeat it. And I think the final factor... They're so um, fucking lucky. Exactly. It's
0: fucking ridiculous. The final factor is the. It's luck. making me mad, like all that <laughs> suffering and bollocks over like so much
1: luck. Yeah, like so it's bad just... luck
0: for us, lot, obviously.
1: Yeah. Fuck. It's just like every you know toss of the coin, Hitler won the toss. Every <laughs> what, single a time. fucking toss pot. <laughs> So that's I think that is a, just a huge part of it. They just got I'm flabbergasted, unbelievably lucky,
0: absolutely flabbergasted. I'm gonna to have to pull myself some more of this whiskey. I'm not flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, a there.
1: So you know, it's, again, like Germany going into this campaign was facing like an economic situation where Germany was seemingly guaranteed to be defeated. By the combined might of the British and French empires backed by the USA, Germany should, by any reasonable method, be losing in 19... You know, after several years of starting the war. And what happens? Six weeks, they've knocked the French out of the war. The British army has been lost all of its equipment.
0: Hitler's plans, like... This is only going to feed his... Because he gets... Like, his craziness from now gets so much worse in the next, like, three years. Yeah. Like, but it's, like, again, this is fueling his fucking exactly. ego, isn't it? Like, he don't see how lucky he's been. Does anybody see how lucky he's been?
1: Well, for everybody else, it's like, shit, Hitler's a genius. Like, you know, yeah. the, the army... they so, don't see
0: this what we know now, do they? Yeah,
1: no. They don't have a full picture. But it's also like, you know, the general's saying, no, 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 we can't do this. We have to fight in this particular way. And Hitler's like, well, no, this is bollocks. We're going to do this. And he was dead right. And it, it paid off. So it's like... Anyone that opposes Hitler is now completely discredited. And you're like, well, fuck, Hitler is a genius. He's correct on every every decision that's paid off. we defeat defeated the French.
0: My wankster.
1: Yeah. But it is like, this is a big part of what happens later. It's like, Hitler can no longer, like, he will no longer listen to, it, like, advice. Obviously, I don't want to get into the thing of, like, Germany loses because Hitler doesn't listen to his generals, which is like a narrative promoted by Germany's generals after World War Two. Uh, they kind of have an incentive to make that, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. argument. Because if Hitler had listened to his generals in 1940, he would have lost.
0: Mm. But if he uh, listened to them in... Oh, yeah.
1: Obviously Germany loses in the end, but they lose a lot slower than they would have been. you yeah. would listened to the advice of the general staff in 1940. So the upshot of all of this then, so we've we said last time, like, you know, in the winter of 1939, after starting the war, Germany is like looking at an economic black hole. It's all of its resources are cut off. It's trade's cut off. It has like,
0: yeah, but basically... it's just inherited all of France.
1: Exactly. Now it's overrun all of the resources of France. Um, and a big part as well as like countries which are so far not in the war, like Romania and Yugoslavia, they had loads and loads of like French businesses there. Those businesses are now Germany's to help themselves. Does that help, um,
0: Does that help with the fact that Romania and Hungary obviously were part of, were they part of the Axis officially? No, yeah not yet but at some point they become it so does this do you think is that help towards it knowing that all their business is in France I
1: mean it's, like... a, it's a big part of it, and it's also like there's you know you're a president or a king of a small to mid-sized like eastern European country the French have just been defeated the British have got nothing left the only thing that's keeping them safe is the fact they're on an island you don't have a choice anymore like I think Romania especially is like pressure end from the in...
0: USSR as well for Romania
1: Exactly, they're under the threat of the, uh, the Soviet Union The Soviet Union will strip away some of Romania's best land They don't really have a choice yeah, Like he's
0: going the battered ex-Ottomans The like, Yugoslavians like, yeah. We know how much they all get on <sighs> Do you know what I mean? Like they got no help, have
1: they? Yeah So I mean, like obviously not to excuse like, Romanian fascists no, 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 Or I'm the terrible saying, shit like, that would like, happen I mean, Yeah, I'm just saying look, but yeah, on a they no, like,
0: strategic level Like yeah. That's the only option.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like, Germany's ability to fight the war, they're only able to carry on because of all of this loot and shit that falls into their hands.
0: Oh, yeah, um, I can see that's the next episode. So, <laughs> <unaware>. <laughs> I guess you don't want to go into that too much now. Um, Is that what you're rusting all them pipes about for?
1: I'm literally looking, how much material do I have on that and should we get it through...
0: No, no, we'll save it, man. Don't worry. <laughs> the last ones have been really long. This one we've only been going about fifty minutes, bruv, so it's just a it's an average time one. That's cool. We'll wrap it there, then, mate. It was it was good. You know what I mean? I, this I, I'm more excited for when the tigers come out. You know what I mean? They slow, low key stuff. I like that end of war craziness that was happening with the tigers and the panthers and. Sturm Tigers,
1: just like all of the fever dreams of twelve-year-olds, like drawn on, like Actually, literally, like yeah. little Gustav has drawn this tank and sent it to Hitler. like this is fantastic. Build five thousand yeah. of them. IS
0: oh, yes, twos and <laughs> yeah, man. They're very iconic, and obviously Hollywood does a lot for, uh, like oh, yeah. World War One, World War Two. Yeah, but
1: the glamour of
0: know. it, the equipment and stuff. Well, it's got me. I love tanks. You know mate. You do as well. I like, mean, <laughs> the tank played, museum yeah. down in Bovington Tank Museum, the one down south, mm. the big tank museum. Mate, it's yeah. fucking wicked there. It's so good. I had such a good time. It like, took me there <laughs> once for some reason. That's where the tank, I think it was the tank that was used in, um, what's that tank film with Brad Pitt?
1: Ah, uh, Fury.
0: Yeah, the yeah, title yeah, you yeah, yeah. that is from there. It's yeah. there when it's in it, like.
1: Yeah. I had a point I was going to make then. You can... That's just completely gone out of my head. But, um... Oh, yeah, yeah, that was it. Um, yeah, like, you know, film, we said this at the start, like, films and games and stuff, it's always like, you know, it's tigers and pampers and half-tracks, but, like, the reality of the war is it's fucking Panzer 38Ts and random stolen French I trucks. I wish there was and...
0: a game that replicated that. Well I suppose early game War Thunder does any any War Thunder players out there.
1: Yeah, still division as well. Yeah. But if you think of like, you know, your Hollywood films, like Fury, they only seem to fight Tigers, like yeah Call of Duty or Company Heroes, it's Tigers fucking galore. Mm. People want to see that cool shit. And also like, you know, like soldiers' memoirs, like every tank was a tiger or a panther. Yeah. Like they they call it the Tiger scale like every tank reported seen in Normandy. Like, do you know how many times the US Army fought Tigers in World War Two? <laughs>
0: in reality or in fiction? In
1: reality, how many times would you guess? In like fiction, recorded distinct encounters US Army versus oh, I bet, Tiger
0: tanks? I bet there was loads recorded.
1: But like actually provable? No, none. I
0: bet there was barely any. Yeah, no? Three. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs>
1: Every yeah, time I, bet got, time.
0: I bet they got. I bet they seen loads though, like you said. Yeah, they saw all the time, so on, time on, but go. in reality, they wouldn't have. It's the fear of it, like you said. Yeah, because it's a main tank. It's a mean, You know, it's big box with this huge eighty-eight fucking cannon on it. You know, it's impressive. The sharp edges, which does absolutely no fucking flight, fiber, so like <laughs> effect. Fucking, you know what I mean. You build a tank, you're trying to deflect fucking shells, not make flat square targets to get good angles onto. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah it's like... so easy to flare that as well. Like it just seems mad.
1: And it's crazy because like you think when the Tiger came in, it's like what 1942 the Tiger entered service. Like the T34 already existed.
0: Yeah, and that was that was bouncing rounds, you know, for fun.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, like less well known, like but the British Crusader tank, it's like angled to fuck. Mm -hmm. But the Germans didn't get the memo on that apparently until like nineteen forty three with the Panther. Also, fucking crazy one, IS two. You think how well armed, heavily armored an IS two is? Weighs less than a Panther. (laughs) That's mad. Just
0: the. the that would be a way bigger tank. Yeah.
1: The wonders of efficient Nazi engineering right there. It's always a panther class as a medium tank, then. Uh, well, I mean, like, within German doctrine, it's a medium tank. Like, it's, you know, the job role of it is to be, like, the, do everything medium.
0: Okay.
1: Not the, you know, the heavy tanks, like the Tigers, have a clear yeah. doctrinal role. But it's sort of the thing, like, the jobs just... Like, All the assault or, like,
0: tanks, like the Stugs...
1: Yeah. I mean, the Stug makes fantastic sense. Oh, it is. Yes, great. The limited...
0: Stug is such a f- smart piece of kit. You didn't actually mention them. Are they not about yet?
1: Uh, Only in a very limited sense. So, like, the Stug A exists, which is, like, a the gun it has is, like, a low-velocity howitzer. Okay. So it's specifically for the purpose of being a mobile artillery piece to directly yeah. support the infantry. Obviously, later in the war, the Stugs would evolve, and they'd develop the long 75, and they'd basically become... The tank destroyer. Tank
0: destroyer, isn't it? yeah. But
1: in their early uh, incarnation, they are specifically about lobbing HE onto oh, okay. infantry and artillery. And the same with Panzer IV, actually. Panzer IV, uh, in the early part of the war, is an uh, infantry support tank. The Panzer III is the tank fighting tank.
0: Well, oh, the stock don't ever get no glitz and glamour, does it? Even though it's probably, for its role, the best tank they made.
1: Yeah, but far the most numerous as well. Yeah. Just doesn't look right. <clears throat> yeah, look it's as cool. weird, isn't it? Mm. it
0: looks squashed. <laughs> oh. Lovely then. All right. Well, uh, hit us up on the Twit on the X. Is it called? Is it, is it officially called X yet or not? I know we keep having this conversation. It's, it's officially called
1: X, but the the URL is still Twitter, so it's still fucking Twitter. I'm not gonna that call it idea, X. No. It sounds like a fucking dodgy call. It's Twitter. Too. We're on there. At makers of history.
0: Yeah, and we're right. Loss does it, but it feeds back to I me mean, what's going on. I know what's going on. I've got a login. I can log in and see. I don't very often, but
1: yeah, no, we have some, we have some stuff about the show. But we also have some like, uh, <coughs> we have some high quality jokes written by a comedic genius, which is myself, obviously. Uh, yeah. And we also have some history stuff on there, with yeah. pictures and stuff.
0: Did you put those pictures of that um, that castle that you saw? I remember that you said you were going to put up.
1: Yeah, so there is, now you have to dig into it a bit, but there is a thread about the, the border defences of Czechoslovakia. Mm. And, like, so some pictures from the 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 Czech version of the Maginot line and a bit about the concept and the idea of those. So I'll repost that in case anyone's listening would like to see that.
0: Yeah, someone's going for your door, mate, so you best wrap it up quick. Yep. All right, <laughs> oh, thank you for listening, everyone.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.